by his baby who saved his enemies. The baby who saved his enemies. But I want to look at a text that's probably not a traditional Christmas text. And that is from Matthew chapter 5. And I want us to look at verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5 verses 43 through 48. And I'm going to ask you one last time. If you're able to, let's stand together and read God's word with reverence. Matthew 5 verse 43 to 48. The Bible says this. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, again, we thank you and praise you for your word. Pray that you would increase and I would decrease and that everything done here today brings you glory. For it's in that glorious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, or even if you weren't, just to catch you up on things, I preached a message on the Good Samaritan. And we were introduced to a lawyer in that story where he he had a question about eternal life, and he wanted to know what was necessary for him to inherit that. Uh, And Jesus begins to push him back to the law, if you will, drives him to the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And so this, this lawyer, this scribe, in seeking to justify himself, says, okay, Jesus is telling me that I need to keep the law, and I know from my own experience that I don't always do that perfectly, so I'm going to try to move the goalpost a little bit. And so the Samaritan, in the story, the lawyer asked Jesus the question, well, who is my neighbor? Because for the, for the Jew, the neighbor would have been people that look just like them. It would have been people that are part of the chosen race. No way on earth would any Jew have considered his neighbor to be a Gentile or someone outside of the nation of Israel? And so the lawyer was very specific and intentional about asking that question. He wanted to lower the bar. He couldn't lower the law, the bar of the law, but he could lower the scope of it to say, well, I can love my brethren as long as I don't have to love those Gentiles, as long as I don't have to love those Samaritans. And so he had in his mind a specific plan that he was trying to to work out there. And so when we we look at the text today, Jesus is again talking about loving his neighbor, loving our neighbors. But notice what else is added in verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where exactly do we find that in Scripture? Well, we find the first part of it in Leviticus 19.18. Where in the Old Testament law it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But that's not what Jesus said totally in verse 43 of Matthew 5, is it? We see the loving your neighbor part, but what about the hating your enemy? Where on earth do we find that in Scripture? Well, we don't. But you see, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis of those days were very good at adding 
more and more to the law, to add man-made traditions and oral traditions and written traditions to the law. And so they came to the conclusion, well, if I'm to love my neighbor and my neighbor must be folks like me, then it's only natural that if you're not like me, I don't like you. I don't like you at all. As a matter of fact, I hate you. And so that isn't a scriptural command. It was just something that the Jews over time began to teach. If you love one group, you necessarily can hate the other group. And so Jesus comes along and He begins to teach these radical things to us. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. You may disagree, but to me, this is the most difficult scripture for a believer to obey. I mean, there, there's some tough ones in there, no doubt. But I don't know of any religion other than Christianity that teaches that we must love our enemies. And that is something that we just simply cannot do in our own strength. That is a supernatural kind of love. It's a supernatural act of God to cause us to be able to love the very people that don't love us. Matter of fact, many of these people may hate us. They may persecute us. But that's no excuse. Just like moving the goalpost by saying, well, who is my neighbor? It didn't work for the lawyer. And there's no excuse that we can offer to get around the fact that Jesus expects us to love our enemies. When we think about what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, isn't part of that prayer uh, to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors? You see, it's always easy and it's, it's almost comical in an ironic kind of way that when we do wrong, we're at the altar, we're on our face before God, and we want nothing but mercy and grace. But when we are wronged, we want vengeance. We want justice. We want God to do something about those terrible people that hurt us. But when it's us that's doing the hurting, Lord, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Don't be mad at me. Don't punish me. Right? We, we want two totally different things for us and for our enemies at times. Another, another scripture that brings this out is Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Question, did God just forgive people that were friends with Him, that loved Him, that were seeking Him? Of course not, because there aren't any people like that. He came to seek and save that which was lost. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good, the Bible says. He came for His enemies. He came for people like you and me when we wanted nothing to do with Him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, so Christ forgave people that wanted nothing to do with Him. So if we're going to forgive as God and Christ forgave us, that must also conclude that we forgive people that don't like us. They don't care a bit about us. So, as we think about what Jesus is saying, I want to ask you a question, and you don't have to answer this out loud, but I want you to at least think about it. Why is it so hard to forgive? It is hard to forgive. It's hard to forgive people that you do like. It's hard to forgive sometimes your children and your spouse whom you love. When they do you wrong, there's something in us that likes to hold on to that power, if you will, of unforgiveness. You like to see them squirm a little bit. You like to see them maybe beg and grovel for your forgiveness, don't you? It's in all of us to some degree. It's not natural for us to just offer up forgiveness immediately all the time. That's not something that we produce naturally. 
I was studying this week a little bit about the word itself, forgive and forgiveness in the Bible. Uh, the Greek word is afamihi. And I was looking at what that word meant, and it's actually a financial term. It's a financial term that means to cancel a debt. So imagine if you owed somebody a bunch of money, and someone came along and said, it's free and clear. You don't owe me anything. It's taken care of. That is the basic idea. There's other meanings, but that's the basic concept of what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word forgive or forgiveness. It's to cancel a debt that is owed. A financial debt that is owed to someone. But obviously this goes much more than just to a financial thing. It goes to every circumstance of life that requires forgiveness. And I will say this also. When we think about, when we think about why is it so hard to forgive people? Why is that so difficult for us? Because I, I really believe this. At the root of our unforgiveness is hurt and anger. I believe that if you really are honest this morning and you're struggling with forgiveness towards someone, that deep down, buried inside, or maybe it's still on the surface, there is hurt about what that person has done to you, and there is anger towards that person about what they've done to you. Those two things seem to always come alongside of unforgiveness. I've found them to be bookends, if you will, when it comes to struggling with forgiving people. But I want you to think about that for a minute. We have hurt, and we have anger. And both of those things are emotions. Both of those things are emotional responses. I am hurting. I am angry. I feel it welling up inside of me. Every time I see that person, it replays in my mind again. I can't get past it. I think I'm over it. I've asked God to help me to forgive. And yet every time it comes up in my mind, it's like it just happened yesterday. Anybody been there? It's not just me. I know it. I know that you've been there because you're human. And we all experience that same kind of thing. But this is what you have to understand this morning. I pray that this will help you along with God's Word. Those emotional responses are absolutely polar opposite to what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not an emotional response. It's a decision. It's a choice of the will. Of the, of, it's a decision that you have to make. It does not involve your emotions. And we talk about this all the time, church. Emotions are all over the place. They can be up, they can be down. They can be here, they can be there. But a settled decision can be final. It doesn't depend on how you feel at any given moment. When you make that decision, it's done. That's why so many people struggle with the assurance of their salvation. They feel all kinds of certain ways. God's Word, my friend, is settled. His work on the cross is finished. Those are definitive acts that are done, they're not based on your emotions. You may wake up and feel lost, or you may wake up and feel saved, but your feelings aren't getting you to heaven. The finished work of Jesus does. And those are the things that you have to anchor yourself on. Eternal truth that does not change, not our emotions which are fickle and all over the place. And so when we talk about forgiveness, you're going to feel anger at times still. You're going to feel bitterness rise up. You're going to feel hurt rise up. But the question is, have you made that definitive choice? Have you truly in your heart of hearts gone to that person, gone to God, and say, I forgive you? And if you've genuinely done that, the emotions may still come, but that doesn't change the fact that you have forgiven. You're going to wrestle with those things. But it doesn't change the act that was done. One of the greatest stories I think everyone ought to read is, this, is the biography of Nelson Mandela. An amazing man that lived a, an amazing life. He spent 27 years 
in prison for trying to end the apartheid in South Africa. And one of the most powerful quotes in his biography was the day that he finally got released in the early, in the early 90s. He had been wrongfully accused of many things. He had been beaten. He had been forced to do hard labor by people. Imagine the hurt and the anger and the bitterness he had towards many people. And he says this. He says, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. He had to make a decision for himself that if he was ever going to be set free from the bondage, which is what it is that unforgiveness will bring, he had to leave that behind. He couldn't take it with him. And friends, some of you have been carrying unforgiveness around with you for a long, long time. And you can't get past it and you can't get over it. And part of it is because you just will not make the decision today enough. I'm not going to live like this any longer. I'm going to obey the Word of God and I'm going to forgive that person. I'm going to cut ties with my anger and my hurt and I'm going to move forward. And you will experience something that is supernatural when you do that. You will experience a peace that passes all understanding. You will have joy flood into your soul. I promise you, based on the Word of God, you will see and feel and experience a real change in your life. As a matter of fact, have you ever been sick for such a long time that when you finally feel better, you're like, man, I didn't realize what it felt like to be, feel better. Some of you have been carrying this around so long that you don't even know what it's like to not be an unforgiving spirit. I didn't think I'd get too many amens on that one. But it's true. And it's true not only because the Bible says it's true, but I've, I've, I've been there. Listen, I'm human too. And there's been times when I've been hurt and I didn't forgive right off the bat. I carried it around for a while. I enjoyed being in control to say, this person hurt me and I'm not going to forgive them. I'm going to hold on to this thing. So every time that I think about it, I can get mad and justify why I'm mad and justify why I'm hurt. Talk to God about how bad they are and how good I am and how I didn't deserve that and they deserve worse and yada, yada, yada. And you can, you can really just bury yourself under a mountain of, of all kinds of bitterness when you live that way. And so, you know, one of the most amazing statements in Scripture to me is when Jesus is on the cross, He's dying for the sins of the world. There are people there mocking Him and jeering Him. He's hanging up there naked, bloodied, and battered. And He looks down upon these people. He could have called 10,000 angels at any moment. He could have destroyed the earth in that moment if He wanted to, and He'd have been justified in doing it. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine that? In that moment, people are killing you. And they are, have beaten you and mocked you. Your family and your disciples are there, and they're hurting and broken. And you look out at the very people doing that to you and you say, Father, forgive them. This, isn't, this is the Son of God saying, Father, forgive these people. The very people that I created are now crucifying me. Forgive them. If that's not a powerful statement and a powerful act, I don't know what is for, for, for God to leave that example for us. And so we go back to our text. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your enemies and hate your, uh, or love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's the thing that struck me. I've read this passage, I don't know how many times over my life. But this stuck out to me this week as I, as I read it and prepared this message. He says in that verse, love your enemies. That tells me a couple of things. It tells me, number one, in life we're going to have enemies. 
I know it's hard to believe, but you may have enemies in church. You may have enemies in the same building that you sit and worship God with. And that's a difficult thought. Because I, I think that sometimes we feel like in church there shouldn't, everyone should get along and everybody should be of the same mind and the same accord. And that's true if everybody's serving the same master. But not everybody in church is saved. And not everybody in church has the same priorities. And not everybody is seeking to glorify God. A lot of folks are seeking to glorify themselves. And sometimes that all comes to a head. And hurtful things are said and, and difficult actions. And let's be honest, wolves like to hide in the church. There have been many, whether it's a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, that have done terrible things to people in the church and felt that they could get away with it because of their position. That's a terrible thing. And if they don't get right with God, they'll stand in judgment for that thing. But nonetheless, we realize, I think we realize that hurt happens even in church. But he says that we love our enemies, meaning we're going to have enemies. But I also think it's interesting that he doesn't say anything about waiting till those enemies become our friends. That may never happen. It doesn't say that our enemies will be transformed into friends if we forgive them. We forgive them. Guess what? They may still be our enemies. That's a sobering thought. I think a lot of times we feel like, well, if we forgive, maybe the things will change, and hopefully they do. But forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Forgiveness only requires you. Reconciliation takes both parties. You can forgive somebody and they can still want nothing to do with you. And that's their choice. But you have done what's commanded of you. Forgiveness is commanded. Reconciliation is hoped for. There's a difference. You have to act on the forgiveness. Try to do everything you can to reconcile but it may not happen. So Jesus talks about the fact that these folks are our enemies and that may or may not change. But that doesn't change what's expected of us. We are still called to love them. I think about that word love. That agape kind of love. Jesus said that our enemies in Matthew 10.36, our enemies may even be people in our own household. Some of you have experienced that where people in your own house, be it a child, a spouse, whatever, there has been some hurt and bitterness and anger that is there that's led to unforgiveness. Jesus said that would be the case. But again, this kind of love, this agape love, is not an emotion. It's a decision. It's an act of the will. It goes deeper than just an emotional response. We use that word love for everything. And sometimes it is just an emotional thing. But real, true, agape, deep-seated, godly, divine love is not an emotion. It may affect the emotions, but it's much more than that. It stems up from the Spirit of God inside of us. It's who we now are in Christ. We love because He first loved us. He enables us to love in a new way, in a deeper way, in a greater way. But until you stop making the excuses about what this person did to you and how bad they are and how they don't deserve it, listen, they, might, they probably don't, and neither do you. But God lavished His love and grace and forgiveness on you and me who are so undeserving. We don't have the option to withhold that. God doesn't give us a pass to say, well, you just don't understand, Pastor. You don't know how bad it hurt me. I'm not diminishing that. And forgiveness does not mean that you ignore the hurt. It doesn't mean that there's not consequences for the actions. Forgiveness is none of those things. Forgiveness is simply canceling the debt. 
It's you letting go of holding on to the need for retribution and the need to, to justify it and to somehow make sense of it. You may never get answers. Again, forgiveness is just letting go of the bitterness and the anger. It's for you. It's for you to be free today. Why, you say, Pastor, why, why do you bring these things up on a, on a Christmas service? What does this have to do with, with Christmas? Because I want you to think about the very reason why that baby in the manger came. That baby in the manger came because He was to be the Savior of the world. He didn't stay a baby in a manger. He grew to be a man, a perfect man, the God-man, sinless. He kept the law in every way. He was obedient to the Father in every aspect. He would go to the cross willingly. No man taketh my life, He said. I lay it down freely. I have the power to take it down. To lay it down, I have the power to take it up again. Those are the words of Christ. Why would He do that? Why would someone come and willingly die for people that didn't want anything to do with Him? People that hated Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's why He would do that. Because God so loved the world that He is willing to give His Son. That baby in the manger that we worship and celebrate today was the one that was promised to the world so that we might have eternal life. The greatest gift that was ever given my friends, is who we're celebrating today. It was promised all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It was on the cross that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. That death, hell, and the grave was forever defeated. When He rose from the grave, the victory was guaranteed. Jesus Christ forever secured victory for His people. Just like He promised. And I love what it says in Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, there it is, we were enemies. We were reconciled. We were, that word reconciled means to bring two parties back together. God was here. We were here. Our sins separated us. And there was nothing we could do to get to God. And there is still nothing you can do to get to God. You're His enemy today. I know we don't like to talk about that because everything is love. God is love. Jesus is love. But let me tell you, the Bible says if you don't know Christ, you are an enemy of God right now. The wrath of God is upon you. If you die today lost without Jesus, you won't enter into heaven uh, and meet St. Peter at the pearly gates and all that stuff that you hear about and read about in secular papers. You will stand before a holy God and be condemned. The Bible says you're condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He says, for while we were enemies, we were brought together. How? We were brought reconciled to God by the death of His Son, the sacrifice of Christ, trusting Him, repenting of your sins and believing is the way that you are made right with God. We were reconciled and we shall be saved by His life. That's why that baby in the manger came. To love and forgive enemies. He gave us that example. And today, we read this text where we too are called to do the same thing. We may not lay down our life for our enemy, but we certainly are to forgive our enemies. The greatest gift that you can give yourself today is to forgive someone that you're holding on to that bitterness about. And he says not only do we forgive and we love our enemies, 
but we pray for those who persecute us. That word means to mistreat or mishandle. And you think, oh my goodness, Pastor, it's bad enough I've got to love them and I've got to pray for them too. It's hard to hate somebody when you're praying for them. You ever tried that? When you're mad at somebody, when all those emotions start coming up and you're worked up again and mad, start praying for them. You'll be surprised that you can't stay mad and pray for somebody at the same time. You just can't. And so when we think about that, why would Jesus tell us to pray for folks that persecute us? We pray for them because we care more about their soul than our feelings. Those folks, if they're lost, are facing an eternity without Christ. If we don't forgive them, if we don't show them love and compassion, they may never ever see Jesus in anyone else but us. But that great act of forgiveness may be the thing that causes them to say, how on earth could they respond to me after what I did to them in such a way? That may be the very thing that God uses to change their heart and soften their heart to receive the gospel. And we pray because we want to see their good over our comfort. Sure, it's uncomfortable to go to someone and forgive them when we don't want to. But we should care more about them than we do ourselves. Christianity is about being a servant. It's about sacrificing. And I know in our selfish world today, where as Americans we think that we are the center of the universe, it's hard for us to accept that as Christians we're supposed to be humble people. That we're supposed to serve others. A lot of folks come to church just because they want to get, get, get. That's not what church is about. You come to give, give, give. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about you give your act of service and worship. The book of Romans talks about that. Beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship or your reasonable service. Present yourself as a sacrifice. That's not something that we do often as Americans, but that's how we're called to live. He says, pray for them, because that baby in the manger would grow up to be the Savior that would pray for His enemies and is still interceding for His people. He is still praying for us. He is still our advocate. He is still our mediator to this day. He gives us an example to pray. In John 17, as He prays, we get down to verse 20, He's speaking about us. Think about that. Jesus is praying in John 17, and He's praying about you in this room. You say, how is that possible? He says, I do not ask for these only, His disciples but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. The written Word that we have was was penned down by inspired men long ago. And it is through this inspired Word that any of you that are saved today came to know Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so as Jesus had prayed that He was praying for those who would also believe because of their Word. That's you and I today if you're a Christian. What an amazing thing that Jesus prayed for us 2,000 years ago before we ever existed when we were still enemies of Him. He was praying for us. He calls us to do the same thing. Wrap up here, verse 45. He says, So that you may be sons of your Father. He's not saying that you do this to earn salvation. He's saying if you're a believer, this ought to be the fruit of your life. You ought to be producing fruit as a Christian If you claim the name of Christ and you don't look anything like Him, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect there. He says that these things ought to be evident in your life. And he goes on and says, For He makes His sun rise on evil and on the good, and it sends rain on the just and the unjust. All he's saying there is that God doesn't show partiality. God's good to everybody. He is. 
And He's just to everybody. And we ought to be the same. We don't get to pick and choose who we love. God says, love your neighbor, love your enemy. That pretty much takes care of everybody. We don't get to choose. We don't get to move the goalpost around like the, the lawyer tried to do last week with the Good Samaritan story. And so he, he wraps up and concludes, if you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then verse 48 says, you therefore must be perfect. Literally, that translation means complete. Spiritually mature in every way. As your heavenly Father is perfect. We, he's not speaking that we are going to be sinlessly perfect. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But we can grow up into the fullness of our faith. Because let's be honest, guys. Let's just be real honest. I think as Christians, especially Christians that spend enough time in church, there's stuff in the Bible that you absolutely know. I mean, I don't need to stand up here and teach it to you. You can probably quote it to me. But you have no intention of obeying it. Because it would, it would mean that you'd have to change some things in your life. I've talked to so many people over the years that claim to be believers in Christ that are living together. And I'll say, listen, I'm glad you want to get married. I'm glad that's your intention. But until you're ready, you're living in sin. Doing what you're doing is wrong. You're right, Pastor. Yeah, you're right. And they walk out of that office and they have absolutely zero intention of changing that. And you know what they'll do? What all of us do, move the goalpost. God understands. He knows my heart. He knows we're getting married and sometime. And uh, so it's okay. Like, he's got a special clause for us. You know, I know what it says in Hebrews and different places, but that doesn't apply to us. And we do that all the time. Even today, I've been talking about forgiving your enemies, and you've already in the back of your mind memory playing all the reasons why you're not going to do this. There are people that you don't like, and you plan on leaving here and still not liking them. Just because you don't want to like them. You don't want to do this. You say, well, I, I'm, God knows my heart. And I, I, I do everything else. I showed up at church today. I sang the songs. I put money in the plate. So balance the scales out. I won't forgive, but I still I did more good than bad. And that's how we justify this stuff. Guys, there's no excuse if you know what to do and you don't do it, it's sin. That's the bottom line. Listen, I, I, maybe you should have stayed home today if you didn't know this. I'm sorry that now I've told you something and now you know something that you've got to go do. And I'm really not sorry. But the fact of the matter is you can't plead ignorance now. You know what you need to do. And I will say this, you will have the best Christmas you've ever had if you get rid of that baggage of that unforgiveness and do what Jesus did and forgive people that didn't deserve it. We've all got people in our lives. Listen, I didn't speak to my dad for 15 years. I get it. He and I had a severed relationship, and it was only because of the birth of my... I, I didn't read the Bible and say, I'm going to call my dad and forgive him. I didn't. The reason what brought us back together was the birth of my daughter, not my heart being convicted about doing this. I'm just being honest with you. But once that connection was made, forgiveness soon followed, and we had a good relationship until he passed away two years ago. And I'm thankful for that. It was never... It was never like it would have been had we spent all of our life together. You can't get back lost time. I get that. But it changed things. It changed things. It, it changed my heart. It changed his heart. It changed our family. And I'm telling you, you can hold on to that bitterness and there'll come a day when it's too late to forgive. Those people, one of these days, will be gone and all your bitterness and anger will turn to regret and guilt. It sure will. It sure will. 
And there'll be nothing you can do about it at that point. I'm pleading with you. I know it's tough. It's not something that we can do. But God put this message on my heart for a reason. And somebody today needs it. I'm praying if it's you, that you'll do what you know you need to do. And that you'll forgive this person. One of the greatest stories of forgiveness, I'll close with this, is a lady by the name of Corey Tenboom. Another book I encourage you to read her story. She was one that would hide the Jews during the, the, the time of the uh, concentration camps and different things. And Corey talks about the fact that years later she was given a speech and one of the guards that had actually been over the woman's camp where she was imprisoned came up to her after the service, after the, after the conference, stuck out his hand and said, I want to thank you for your message. He didn't recognize her, but she immediately recognized him. And she said it seemed like hours as he stood there with his hand out. And she had just talked about forgiveness. But in the moment, she said, I couldn't bring myself to reach out and grab that man's hand. All the things he had done to me and those other women just were replaying in my mind. And she said, finally, the Spirit of God convicted her to the point where she reached out her hand and grabbed his, and she said it felt like a jolt of energy went through her body and through his body. And she said that it was, it was an experience that she couldn't put into words. But a few weeks later, she was at her home, and she began to think about some folks that she used to go to church with that had hurt her. And she had kept letters that they had written to her, hurtful things that they had wrote. She kept them in her desk drawer for years. And she stopped and she started to think, how could I forgive a man who had done those things to me in the concentration camp, but I can't forgive these people who did something far less severe in my life? And she went to talk to her pastor, and her pastor gave her some very wise counsel. He pointed out the window to the church across the street that had a bell tower. And he said, he said Corey, do you see that bell? And she said, yes. And she said, when, when they grab the rope and pull, the bell will swing back and forth. As long as they keep pulling on that rope, the bell will continue to swing. He said, but when you let go of the rope, the bell will still make noise for a while but eventually it will stop. And his point was this. When you forgive, you're letting go of the rope. The bell may still ring for a while. You're still going to have certain feelings that come up. But when you truly learn to forgive and you walk in that decision, not the emotion, the decision, eventually the bell will stop ringing. Eventually you won't have the struggle that you have now. I think about that baby in the manger. The reason why we're celebrating this week, Christmas. And that child that came, he did so for that one purpose. Guys, I pray that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that you, if you don't take anything else away from this message, that you hear me on this. That Christ came for one reason and one reason only. And that was to seek and save that which was lost. He came to lay down His life and offer Himself as a sacrifice for you. You may think, I don't deserve it. I'm too guilty. Whatever you're thinking today, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. I know a lot of you have been searching on Amazon and eBay and all through the stores to try to find the perfect gift. And just like our sign says out there, the perfect gift has already been given. You're not going to find it in the store. It's not going to be under your tree on Christmas morning. 
It was in a manger 2,000 years ago. He would grow up and hang on a cross at 33 years old and die a sinful sinner's death, although he had no sin of his own. He'd be placed in a borrowed tomb for three days. And the stone would be rolled away on that glorious morning. And he would walk out of there alive. And he did all of that. Every single bit of that for you. That is what the Word of God tells us. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. I can't explain to you in human words how much Jesus loves you this morning. But if you'll turn from your sins and embrace him, you'll experience that love. I'm not asking you to go out and forgive people if you yourself haven't yet been forgiven. But if you've experienced that or you want to experience that today, you can. And it will change your life forever. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And as the praise team comes to sing today, Lord, I pray that during this time of invitation, you would have your way in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. That you would help us to forgive like Jesus forgives. But more than that, Lord, I pray that someone watching or someone here that is lost, would see just how much you love them. How much that you pursuing them, that you allowed them to be here today to hear the very message that they needed to hear so that they might look to you and live. Father, I pray that you will draw them into your presence and allow them the opportunity to receive you in faith. And Father, we give you thanks now in this time of invitation for everything that happens. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and as we sing, would you come this morning? Receive the greatest gift. Ask God to help you to forgive if that's what you're struggling with. He can do it.